welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. There's no heroes in Test Cricket, son. Retire hurt. August guy in and he kept saying, do you need any shampoo? Do you need any conditioner? My car stunk for about a week and I couldn't get rid of the smell. But it turned out that the decanter of port had been donated to the owner of the hotel by Nelson Mandela upon his release from Robin Island and someone had nicked it. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. Technolwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults, and we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a three-time Power Olympic gold medalist. Welcome to the podcast, David Smith. Hey, Adam. Yeah, thank you. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate that. No problem. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Um, before we start our podcast, David, we always like to start with a few random questions before we get involved and talk about your career, if that's okay? No problem, yeah, far away. Okay, so the first one is, who is the most famous person in your phone book? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, the most famous person in my phone book? Um, oh, do I have... <laughs> he used to have... Uh... Kenny Greg Thompson, I think, but um, at the moment, who's my most famous person? Um, yeah, that's probably, yeah, that's probably it. Actually, um, yeah, I, I don't have that many, uh, yeah, celebrities in my circles. <laughs> we um, we had Tanny Greg Thompson on the podcast, I think last year. Um, she's a, what an amazing woman, like incredible. Yeah, no, she no, she's she's great, and obviously all the work she does in in Parliament and stuff for disability rights and stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's cool that she managed to break into the break into the House of Lords, as it were, and uh, yeah, and it's a change from the inside. <laughs> yeah. So, if you could trade lives with anyone for one day and one day only, who would it be and why? Ooh, um, trade lives. I would probably trade with um, so. Uh, I've got a one of the business mentors that I uh, look up to quite a lot um, has a crazy uh, lifestyle um, and so his name's uh, David Bevan so another David um, and uh, yeah he he's a uh, yeah he he's got a pretty insane lifestyle so um, yeah I would like to live in his shoes for a day and see what what he get, gets up to <laughs> okay and the last one if you could have any superpower what would you have and why? Um, I'd probably have flight uh, because, yeah, that's that would be cool. You'd get around a lot easier, a lot quicker. Yeah. Fly to somewhere nice. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's go, go back to the beginning. Let's go back to your childhood. What are your memories of growing up and was sport always a passion of yours? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so sport has always been... Sort of, I've always been into sport. or you know, watched it football when I was younger. Um, you know, I used to watch the World Cups. And I think my first first memory of like a sporting competition is probably the nineteen ninety eight World Cup. Um, so yeah, I, I always remember watching the sporting events with my family. My dad's into his horse racing, so I used to have to suffer that for a bit. Um, but um, yeah, so sports always been in around um, for myself in childhood. Um, when I was very young, I di- didn't get a chance to do many sports. Um, my circle of friends, neighbours and stuff, I used to be goalkeeper or referee when they would play football, but um, it was sort of by na- by design um, and not necessarily what I wanted to do, but it was just the only thing that they could uh, find use for me, <laughs> um, being in the any wheelchair user in the in the in the neighbourhood. Um, but 
Um, when I sort of got to maybe seven or eight, um, we, we, there was more sporting opportunities from at my school. Um, and um, that was when I first sort of started doing sports like boccia, um, polybat. Uh, there was a bit of athletics as well, just chucking things as far as possible. Um, and um, yeah, I went to Stoke Mandeville for a national junior mini games and I was about seven or eight. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we did like different sports. There was a multi-sports day. Um, so I did a little bit of boccia. I did a little bit of throwing a cricket ball as far as possible, wheelchair slalom, that sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, I was pretty hopeless at Boccia, um, threw sideways, couldn't hit a barn door. Um, and yeah, it was uh, it wasn't particularly enjoyable, but you know, it was something I could say I'd done. Um, so that was sort of early years, and then I went to secondary school, uh, a place called Floors in Orton, Hampshire, and it was a boarding school for people with uh, severe physical disabilities. Um, and there, it was sport was very a big part of the culture um you know, any sort of activity is a big part of the culture but um yeah so we all sorts of stuff uh, drama uh, sport music um and yeah i when i was there i learned a valuable lesson to say yes to everything um because i turned down an opportunity to go and see the t- filming at lara croft and tomb raider oh, wow. um, and my friends told me what an idiot i was for not going and how good looking she was um so so i uh i from that moment on i was like uh right i'm gonna say yes to everything um and see what happens so and then botcher became an option for me to do because in my class we used to do homework every night we could prep um and we we didn't enjoy it um no one does um and um basically i had the option to play botcher on a monday evening instead of doing homework um so I took that option because I knew what botcha was. Didn't enjoy it, but I thought, well, it's going to be better than doing homework. So, yeah. um, and that's where that's where my botcha sort of regular playing started. And uh, within a within a couple of years, I was British champion. Um, and uh, Trelaws gave us opportunities to go to many competitions, um, sort of Blackpool, Sheffield, uh, F- Farnborough, um, and we'd. Uh, yeah, rock up in a big coach and basically if you didn't come home with a medal you were feeling a bit left out um so um yeah it was kind of installed in us that you know yeah i just didn't want to be the one left out so made sure i won something um and yeah it botcher happened to be the thing that i started winning a lot um and yeah it became a habit and it just steamrolled into into a professional career amazing and that's you say you've took so many opportunities and and you found botches for you and that that's amazing and just going back to kind of your teenage years and, and, and schooling obviously you have cerebral palsy yeah what are your memories of of kind of accessibility and, and when you were growing up in what are you 32 33 yeah i'm 34 so 35 in in a couple of weeks so kind of in the 90s then as you were a child what was what was that like wheelchair wise and and accessibility um, yeah, it was my memories of it were always so when I was when I was very young, um, accessibility was something that was sort of my dad would kind of try and fix on the fly. Um, so we had like metal ramps into a Ford Transit van, you know, dodgy clamps. Uh, he'd have a block of wood so that I could get into the front door um, and stuff like that. So it was all very much on the fly, not necessarily sort of adapted to me. Um, and not necessarily made for me as such. Um, so that was kind of my sort of early experiences. Obviously, navigating f- through town and stuff didn't really happen until I was, you know, maybe, you know, 9, 10, 11, started using my electric wheelchair more regularly outdoors and exploring and stuff um, and, you know, learning how to navigate around town, drop curbs, all that sort of stuff, and, yeah. you know, uh, crossing roads and just, yeah, just getting out and about and trying stuff and yeah just seeing what i could do um that was kind of my early sort of childhood experience and then uh when i went to trelaws the world just opened up um it was it, it was a place that was totally adapted for for me um and for anyone that was there so it, it almost became normal being in a wheelchair it just it was just it was just something you did um you know charging it up every night all that sort of stuff was just it was just part of it. everybody did it so it was not not seen as anything particularly special um and then yeah and obviously all the accessible transport they had and being able to go places 
it was just seen as normal. We were encouraged to go out as well. And, um, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, I was getting on the train, going to London, going to Leicester, uh, doing all these things on my own. Um, and sort of, you know, as long as I, as long as I, got back in time and got got in at night at the, uh, a, a suitable hour I wouldn't get in trouble <laughs> and that was about it um so that was kind of my experience is sort of getting learning how to, how to how to deal with accessibility um and yeah and and things you know weren't always good obviously on the train it was common knowledge that trains aren't great and you know you sometimes get stuck on the train and forgotten about and you know you, you shared experiences with your friends and you you know you learn little tricks to how to how to make sure that people do what you want them to do for you like sticking your feet in the door so that the doors can't close so the driver can't drive off from the platform um and then that usually gets a member of staff to you to get the ramp done so yeah all things like that so you know who cares if it delays the train, train half an hour um and has that has that improved in the uk no not at all it's pretty much exactly the same as it was 20 years ago uh, blame the Tories for that, I would say, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, nothing's changed. It's it's train travel is exactly as I remember it. Um, yeah, it's uh, the only thing's got better is the, the functionality of the apps are better now, so you can book assistance and stuff's a little bit easier. But but the actual trains themselves, so rolling stock is no better than it was when I when I was a teenager. Um, so you've become professional in the sport of botcher. Lots of our listeners um, might not know what botcher is. Might this might be the first time they've they've come across it. So we do it in our school, and and lots of special schools do it. But can you explain very briefly what the sport of botcher is, and maybe how you play and how you win? Yeah, so botcher is a, a bowls game um, similar to boule or batonk. Um, we play with quite soft leather balls on a hard floor, badminton court usually, um, and. Yeah, um, the rules of the game are you you have six balls um, of red and blue color. So you so you play with one color and your opponent plays with the other. Um, and you have a white ball, which we call a jack. And the aim of the game is to get, once all the balls are played, to be the one with the closest uh, to the jack um, if, with as many balls as possible. Um, and yeah, unlike other games, it's not alternate. So we, we throw based on who's furthest away. Um, so uh, the games are quite dynamic. Um, it's uh, usually quite a lot of power involved. Balls get moved around all over the place, um, and it's quite an intense sport um, compared to bowls games, which are usually traditionally seen as old man sports and kind of a bit chilled and slow paced and stuff. Botcher's not really like that. Um, it's actually quite an aggressive sport um, when played properly. <laughs> no, I watched them. Um, so we do it at school, and I've. I've seen a bit. I've in preparation for this. We watched um, some of the Paralympic games where where you won gold medals, and it it looks really good. And it's it's. Would you say it's a growing sport? Has it has it grown over the, like kind of throughout your career? And has it become more popular? Yeah, so botch has exploded in popularity. It's probably the fastest growing Paralympic sport, or it certainly was in 2018. Um, so we're active in I think almost 90 different countries now around the world. Nice. Um, we got a foothold in africa now as well which is good um and um the, the world governing body are always trying to expand to different areas and different places so um yeah botcher is a really popular sport around the world we we actually in tokyo there were 17 medals on offer and it was won by 13 different countries from three different continents oh, wow. um so and it was an even split between so i think america won three medals europe won four medals and asia won three medals um, so it's an even split around the world in terms of who's good and what category and how good and how long and all that sort of stuff and who's dominant and who doesn't. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a really good um, it's it's a really competitive sport. Um, probably the most competitive Paralympic sport. Um, and uh, in terms of the level of competition, it's it's brutal. Uh, one one bad shot and you're out basically. Um, and you mentioned earlier you became am I right in saying the youngest ever British box champion at the age of fourteen? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then take us back to that time. Then, what was it like to become British champion at such a young age? Um, well, it was all part and parcel of being at Trelaws. Um, there was always something going on. Um, so the guy a year above me, um, there was a hundred meter runner called Ben Rushgrove, um, who actually got a silver medal in Beijing when I won the gold. But he 
And so he had just been selected for the British team at that point. So he was going off to trials for the 100 metres. Um, so, like, my success in Boccia was just another one of the stories that was coming through at that point. It was, it, it was just, you know, I was another student that had done well in something. <laughs> um, so, so when I came back to Trelaws, it was kind of a case of uh, my classmates telling me to, yeah, just because you're British champion doesn't mean that you can get away with nothing, get on with it um, and back to work kind of thing. Um, I actually became head boy, though. Uh, my my mates decided it'd be really funny if they could get me elected as head boy. Um, so um, they basically did a whole campaign based on my winning in the British Championships, even though I wasn't particularly keen on doing it. Um, they, they thought it'd be... They, none of them wanted to do it, so they were like, oh, we'll just nominate David to do it. Um, <laughs> and then and then I won, apparently, um, and became head boy. Um, so that was kind of... Yeah, that was kind of on the back of that. And uh, then I started getting the opportunities to meet, like, dignitaries and going to... Um, because Trelaws is a charity, so we used to go and see patrons and stuff and into London to see, like, worshipful company of shoemakers or clockmakers or whatever. And um, they'd hold, like, events and stuff, and you'd rub shoulders with dignitaries and potential HRHs as well. Um, so learning to talk to people that were quite clearly a few classes above you um where you know that sort of i i developed that quite quickly through trolls of well, like those opportunities to rub shoulders with people and to just yeah talk amazing and then a few years later you went a lot better than british champion and in 2007 in vancouver yeah, right. world champion so yeah double world champion so we won the team and the individuals um which uh, the the team was I think well both were quite unexpected really. Um it was just one of those things that all came around at the right time. And um as an individual I'd already I'd already had two years at that point as a seasoned international. Um and I'd kind of got an idea of who my rivals were and who the people I wanted to try and beat were. And um it just in that year it all came together and I got a decent run to the final. Um and yeah I ended up the people I played against I either didn't know or I'd beaten before um so it was it was quite a nice run to the final although my coach uh had lost a few hairs because the so quarterfinals i was five one up and it went to a tie break um i won the tie break semi-final i was four one up and then it went to another tie break and then i won that tie break as well um and having won the toss, chose to go second, which did my coaches nothing. Um, why did you do that? Because <laughs> I knew he was going to bottle it. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, and then that was kind of the uh yeah, and then obviously the final um was against someone that I'd beaten in the European Championships two years earlier. So uh it was like ah, oh, this is this is mine. Um so yeah, and it turned out that way. And then the team we we hadn't won a tournament at that point um in the team, but we'd got like a silver in the Europeans and we got a bronze at the World Championships a year before. And again, it was just one of those we just got on a run, uh we got on a roll, we started playing well and yeah, in the final we played um, we played Spain. We didn't want to play Portugal because we thought they were a better team than us. But Portugal got knocked out in the semis by Spain, and then we ended up playing Spain in the final. So, and we'd beaten Spain before. So again, it was another one of oh, we can do this. That's no problem. Yeah. No, we've beaten these. Amazing and and success kept on coming. Was it the following year in 2008? You went to your first Paralympic Games in Beijing. We talk about how maybe it went. What was it like as an experience for you? What were your memories of like the athletes' village and, and Beijing itself? Uh, Beijing was incredible. Um, Beijing was uh, yeah massive. Um, I remember the stadium being like eighty thousand seater stadium, um, full to the rafters when the opening ceremony was. Um, individual tournament didn't go so well for me. Um, I was quite distracted with things going on at that point, so um, my individual tournament sort of fell off a cliff. But um, for the team, I was guided by our captain um, and managed to pull myself together a bit and. We uh, we did we did pretty well, and obviously we we played Portugal in the final um, and beat them. So yeah, it was just having. To be fair, we nearly lost to Canada on the first day, um, and Canada weren't a very good team at that point. And we, we were our coach was going absolutely nuts at us, like what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you could beat these people all ends up, and then we I think I we tie break. I think I won the tie break with my last ball or something. And then, uh, and then after that, we just started clicking. Um, and then we played China in the semis and played out of our skins because they were a decent team at that point. And then obviously played Portugal in the final. 
um, who yeah, who were our sort of rival, main nemesis rivals, and obviously we got the better of them and beat them quite comfortably in the end. So it was yeah, just one of those tournaments where everything came together really, and we just yeah. Amazing. And what was it like then on getting that gold medal around your neck, the first Paralympic gold? Uh, it was it was it was amazing. It was a, a really powerful moment. I remember it being uh, yeah quite emotional, particularly for Nigel, who was the captain at the time. Um, I didn't necessarily realise it at the time, but what the team means um, to to us as a group, and uh, and obviously now I'm captain myself. I, if uh, I'm sure if we get to that position, I'll be equally as emotional. Um, um, but yeah, it, it was a it was a special moment, and it was uh, yeah it's. The legacy of that medal um, are now has been thought uh, is is evident for ever since. Really, we uh, from UK sport funding to uh, BC Freeze getting better equipment to you know training camps to becoming more professional. That all of that came from that medal. Um, Botch UK wouldn't be in the position we're in now without it. So uh, yeah, it's quite a sort of pinch yourself moment. Really, it's like well, I was part of that. Yeah, part part of big change in. You've been involved in in lots of Paralympics, and so your first win in 2008 would have been 16 years ago. How have yeah. you seen the Paralympics change over the last 16 years, maybe in, t- in terms of um, competitions, spectators, uh, television? How have you seen it change? Um, yeah, it's it's definitely been an evolution. I think Beijing was a bit like rent a crowd, and it always felt like we were stuck on the end of the Olympics a little bit. Um, the, the the village was a bit smaller afterwards. So, you know, there were empty areas where the Olympians had been and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it all felt a little bit artificial. Um, obviously, being in a, in that sort of country where disability is usually sort of kept hidden, um, it felt a bit weird as well. But um, London took it on a notch. It definitely felt like its own event. Um, and obviously, we had paying spectators who wanted to be there. Um, and uh, you know, Boccia sold out for the first time. Um, obviously, we had our own arena um, in XL, and yeah, it was just great for friends and family and people that knew the sport in our country to come and see it. So that was that was cool. But it, but I think um, the issue we didn't really get the London legacy that many other sports were talking about. We didn't in Boccia participation didn't really go up. Um, in the UK, we didn't really get TV coverage. We didn't get a lot of things really. Um, and I think, uh, so we all kind of felt a little bit left out after, after London. Um, and it was just, we just sort of got our heads down and I, I obviously focused on Rio quite quickly, um, because I wanted to get the gold. Um, and then obviously in Rio, it was different again, cause it was a little bit more like, will this, won't this happen because of all the political stuff that was going on. And then you had, um, but when we were there, the, the crowd were amazing. They were in London, it was a little bit restrained um, due to directors and organizers not wanting to create too much noise, which I don't understand. Um, and then in Rio, they just let the crowd do whatever they want. Um, and the crowd just did whatever, they, you know, Mexican waves in the middle of a warm up, uh, all that sort of stuff. So um, it was just it, the atmosphere in Rio was amazing. Um, and that was kind of the evolution of the games in that sense, and that the crowd were a bit more free to do what they want. Um, although the facilities and other things were a little bit more questionable, there was, you know, there were issues in Rio. But, um, but yeah, the, from a from a spectator's standpoint, and again, Botcher sold out for the second time running, um, and yeah, we had some great moments in the in the uh, in the arena. Um, so yeah, it, it was good, but we didn't get any TV coverage. So I think my final got maybe two minutes on Channel Four. Um, so again, quite disappointing. And I remember coming off the plane after we got back from Rio with Sarah and because of my electric wheelchair, I have to wait a while for him to get the chair around so I can transfer. And so by the time I'd got through to the media zone at the airport, all the media had left. Um, so all the other gold medalists had got their piece in the paper and whatever. Um, and by the time I got there, there was no one left. So no interviews, no nothing. I was just me and Sarah on our own in Heathrow Airport going, oh, I'll go home now then, shall we? Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that felt good. Um, and then, and then, uh, but then Tokyo uh, came along, obviously with the COVID pandemic. I was still quite frustrated with the sport, but I decided um, during the lockdown that I was going to not accept things as they were and not just not blame the sport um, or anybody else to take on responsibility myself. Um, so I went to Tokyo with freedom of just do what I want to do and 
enjoy myself and make the most of it. Um, obviously, won the gold, uh, was flag bearer for the closing ceremony, um, and then um, had a plan based on what the reaction would be when I got home, depending on the situation. If it was like Rio, I knew what I was going to do. If it was uh, a bit more interesting, then I knew what I was going to do as well. Um, and yeah, so when I came home from Tokyo, the reaction was much, much better. I think having live, being live on TV, um, you know, having a million plus spectators watching my final um, on ch- live on Channel Four made a huge difference. And yeah, we for the first time felt like a properly respected Paralympian in in the Paralympic movement. So uh, yeah, and. And it was uh, it was nice to finally get recognition uh, for the sport, not just for myself. And do you think obviously we've got the Paris Games this year, which is it's obviously not a home games, but it, it's it's not very it's only a short flight away, isn't it? Just it'll probably be lots of British fans there watching. Are you expecting kind of popularity to go up again this year? Um, I hope so. Um, yeah, I think the next step for us in the Paralympic movement is to get away from this whole. It comes around every four years. Um, there's always like this massive buzz just before Paris or just before games and then it dies away and then you have three years of nothing and then and then suddenly it all kicks off again so my hope after Paris is that it doesn't die away that there's it becomes a lot more engagement with the Paralympic sports in general um not just watcher but all the sports because I know every Paralympian struggles with this but actually keeping that uh, awareness and keeping the keeping their profile going when the when the game's time's not on, um, would be nice. So that's my hope for Paris is that we actually build a more lasting legacy from it, uh, sustainable interest over a period of time rather than, you know, lurching from one Paralympic Games to another and 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 having three years in the middle of where it's pretty much like a desert. Yeah. Um and then looking at London obviously with the Hutton Games, you, you won two medals of bronze and silver. What was your best memory of London? Maybe away from competing, is there a certain memory that stands out for you? Um, yeah, so London. I mean, L- London was great for many reasons. I actually remember. So when I was in preparation for my matches, um, m- our performance director's wife was the head of the UK sport at that point, and so she had facilities um, in a hotel opposite the XR Arena, which is like a really posh hotel, and she had like an extra suite. Um, so she basically let me have that room. Um, so that I could chill out in between matches and stuff. So, and that was actually where my family met me after I'd won the silver medal. Um, so we we actually had a nice family moment um, around that time um, and away from everything after the after I'd done the job, so to speak. So, yeah, it was yeah, that was quite nice having that Amazing. option. Very nice. And then during or in between London and Rio. You again had lots of success winning European and World Championships. You've won lots of medals throughout your career, but is there one medal that stands out as your your favourite or your your best medal or your, your standout memory? I think probably the Tokyo final was probably the the one at the moment so far. It's probably the, my most defining moment, purely because I was the first botcher player to be live on TV, um, on Channel Four at least. Um, you know to have that much you know have a million people we had to watch my game and it to be a decent game because i've been in finals where it's been an absolute farce um mm-hmm. and it's just like one-sided or it, it, the game never really takes off and it's a bit like dull compared to other games that i've had leading up to the final like the final sometimes turns into a bit of a damp squib mm-hmm. um but it was nice that this one was a bit back and forth um like my my opponent uh chewy gave me as good as he got um and uh, yeah, it was back and forth, and neither of us kind of knew who'd won it until the last couple of balls. So it, it was good, and it was he kept me honest, and I gave and I I did the same for him. So we had a good battle. So that's kind of what you want, really, uh, mm-hmm. for the sport more than anything else. Definitely, and over your career as well, you've changed coaches a few times. How important is it to you to have a good coach and and build a relationship with a coach? And how has every coach been different for you? Yeah, it's it's really important. I think that the team around you is the most important part um, of any sports person. You, you don't get to achieve your potential if you if your if your mind's not in the right place or if you're physically not confident or you you, you know anything slightly off, it can make a massive difference to your performance. So, uh, yeah, the team around you is massively important. Um, I found that to my cost in Beijing, where I was 
quite young and naive and I didn't really have the team around formed around me yet to to know what I needed. Um, in London, obviously, it was better um, having Sarah with me for the first Paralympic Games and uh, she's been with me since 2011. So that continuity as an on-court assistant makes all the difference. Um, and then obviously from a coach point of view, it's just my first coach was Barry Bowden, who who was at Trelaws and he was he was a care coordinator who ran the botcher sessions and he sort of took it on himself to coach me all the way up to becoming world champion. Um, so he was like the one that sort of my formative years. Um, and then after that, sort of it sort of fluctuated between Sarah um, for a little bit and um, yeah, other people. Um, but then eventually I said to Sarah, you know, as much as I like you as a coach, I'd rather have you as my assistant, someone that's in my corner um, and not, you know, not got not pulled in different directions so um so she became my assistant and then my coach after that became claire morrison who's still uh, one of our lead coaches in Portugal uk um and at that point the professionalization of the sport started building so we started trying new things with the physios and stuff and that was sort of where i hit my sweet spot i guess the the chair the suit um my playing equipment sort of rapidly evolved from around 2013 onwards and by 2014, I think I'd hit more or less the formula that was going to make me successful. Um, and I ha hasn't changed that much since. Um, it's just been a case of refining it and evolving it. But the the um, yeah, the the things were there in place in 2014, like the chair that I currently play in, I played in back in 20, got in 2014, I won the world championships then. Um, the balls I use, some of the balls that I played with then, I, you know, similar balls that I use now. Um, to do the jobs I need them to do. So, um, yeah, those were changes I made back then and I've still kept. And actually, ironically enough, those changes, other athletes have started copying me. Um, so that's quite nice. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, quite a, quite a pat on the back. Uh, when other athletes start doing what you're doing, you know, you're doing something right. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of doing things right, you um, became captain of the team in 2013. Yeah, what kind right, yeah. of... A captain are you and what's what kind of leader would you say you are um i try to lead from example um i, I just try and let my performances do the talking I, I try and instill in the team a sense of like it's never over and they can rely on me to try and you know if there's any if there's a situation that needs a miracle then i'm the one to try and dig them out um if i can and i'll you know i'll put everything onto it into it to do to do what i can for the team um yeah, I, I'm not a necessarily a dictator. I'm not. A, I'm not a strict leader, or you know, yeller like uh, Roy Keane as well. I'm more kind of chilled and a bit more fluid. Um, but um, I think I'm. I probably add uh, energy, a positivity, um, and uh, sort of someone that likes options. So uh, you know, nothing. I never rule anything out. Um, and I'm more open to suggestions and kind of. Um, and kind of lean on lean on what the my teammates say um for sort of guidance and then and then we'll make a decision based on the the information i've got um and try and be as fair as possible um but equally sometimes you say you know what my gut's telling me we should do this um if it's wrong i'll take the flack for it but we're bloody doing it <laughs> yeah. yeah sounds good you've got, you've got to do that sometimes yeah. um do you want to take a little stop with the question about your career and play a little would you rather game that's okay? okay okay so would you rather a night in or a night out when i was younger it was probably a night out now it's probably a night in <laughs> uh beach holiday or city break uh beach holiday would you rather talk to animals or speak every language uh speak every language would you rather explore space or the bottom of the ocean probably space and would you rather go forward 200 years and see your family or go back 200 years and see your family? Uh, I'd probably go forward. Uh, they wouldn't accept me in 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. So we'll get back onto your career. There's a, a few questions to go, if that's okay. Yeah. So 2016, again, I, I say this all the time, every year seems a successful year for you. But 2016, the Rio Olympics, again, very successful. That was your first individual gold medal. And yeah. what are your memories of that? And was it different winning it yourself rather than as a team or, or did it not matter? Um, 
Yeah, so Rio was a really difficult tournament for me. Um, really difficult. Um, so, yeah, it was a miracle that I ended up coming out with a gold spoof. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was difficult. We, we, we'd gone for a little bit of transition at that point with the team. Uh, the team at that point, I was still playing with the, the old captain. Um, but I was captain and it was the dynamics of old captain playing with new captain in the same. It didn't work. Um, let's be frank. It was, it was a mess. And the relationship broke down quite quickly. Um, and during Rio, when the pressure's on, it, people, it, it doesn't take much for people to start falling out with each other. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately for me, the team was first. So um, I don't like it when the team plays before the individual tournament. Never have. Um, but in that tournament, it was team first. And it, having to sort of put all my energy in the team and then uh, when the team bombed out and things sort of came to a head and then having to try and refocus as an individual, it just, it, it, it was really difficult at the start. And it um, even sort of relationships with my coach at that point had broken down as well. Um, and it was pretty much just me and Sarah against everybody else, including our squad. <laughs> um, and and it became a case of sort of, we, we just sort of, I went to one side with her and we sort of spent two hours trying to figure out what the hell was going on and how we were going to get out of here alive. Um, and then, um, and then after, you know, quite an emotional conversation, we, we just, we just decided, right, this is what you're going to do. You're just going to play your normal game. You're going to ditch all the tactics that your previous coach had given you because they weren't working. Um, and you're just going to do what you do and don't worry about it and, and focus on that. Um, bringing people in that you, you trust. So we brought in Glenn, who uh, sub subsequently became my coach. But at that point, he wasn't my coach, but we just brought him in because he was a safe pair of hands and a, a calming influence. Um, and Dawn, our physio, lead physio, was the other person that I trusted. So again, it became a, a triad of those three people were the three that I would go to for whatever um, and everybody else to stay a hell away. Um, <laughs> Don't talk to me until the final. <laughs> Basically, um, leave me alone <laughs> with your psychological nonsense. Um, so, so yeah, that was that was that really. And we so I knuckled down, and I played the world number one in the quarterfinals because I lost a pool game in the in uh, against someone I shouldn't have lost to based on my old coach's information. Um, so um, playing the world number one free game two games too early wasn't ideal. Um, I'd never beaten him at that point either, so didn't so. Yeah, going into that game, having sort of blown up the night before, we kind of just went in with like, oh, to hell with it. Let's just see what happens. Um, I actually went 4-1 down in that game where with one end to go and I managed to pull it back to a tiebreak um, and then I beat him on the tiebreak. So, and then that kind of, and then, then the tournament opened up for me. Um, and at that point, I was almost confident I was going to win it. Um, and it was just a case of managing it then and not getting too ahead of myself. Um and just fighting through because that, that was my toughest game. But then the next game was the semi-final and it was on the same day. So it was like trying to get back up for the semi-final was difficult, but I managed to get over the line. And then I had a, a break before the final. So I was able to just get my energy back. Um, and then obviously in the final, it was just my opponent didn't really turn up. He, I think he was just happy to get the silver medal um, like I was in London. Um, so he didn't really turn up and it was a bit of a nothing game really. I should have won by more, but um yeah it 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 was nice to get the win and sort of the relief after everything that had gone on the tournament in the before it was just nice to get it out and just go thank god for that we've done it we've got, yeah. got over the line <laughs> well that's no amazing and to win again would is an incredible achievement especially on, on on your own which i just imagine getting that gold medal around your neck when it's when it's yours and you've done it individually is, is incredible we read a stat about you a few days ago. I just want to check it's true because if it is, it's an unbelievable stat. Is it true that you've you're undefeated in Britain in twelve years in a row? Uh, yes, more than that. Um, so the last time <laughs> I was beaten in the UK was in two thousand and four. Two thousand four. Wow, twenty years. Yeah, that's incredible. So, well, that's just that's incredible. <laughs> that's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's more of a reflection on the. Uh, unfortunately, in my category, there just aren't that many people in the UK playing it. So, uh, yeah, we we just I don't have uh, much competition in the UK, so I don't I don't compete in the UK at all now in terms of like national tournaments or regionals because there's just no point. 
the standard difference between me and them is it's at the golf. I mean, the UK Championships, I'm winning games 16, 17, nil. So why then? Why? After you're an amazing player, but why is no one coming anywhere near you? Um, so the multitude of factors. I think, I don't like blaming the Tories for everything, but I think we have to blame them for some things. And um, so the cost of living hasn't helped. Um, we've struggled to recruit. Um, and basically with my disability nowadays, a lot of the players or would-be players are going to mainstream schools and they're not getting the inclusive education that I had when I was at Trelaws, um back in the you know back in the early noughties. So um, that induction into independent living, into you know trying different things, into you know confidence and saying yes to everything, and you know having a, a, a safe place where there are no limitations. Um, most people of my disability don't have that anymore. Um, and Trelaws is a different place now as well because the demographic of the students has totally changed. So um, now I'm a patron there now, so I, I see it um, every year. But um, so now, whereas when I was there, I was probably average in terms of the level of disability that they had. Now I'd be well well in the top end, probably the most able-bodied student in the school. And so that just, yeah, it's just the way it's gone in terms of science has progressed. So people are giving birth um, who wouldn't necessarily have survived 20 years ago. Um, and then that pushes those that, you know, with my level of disability into the more mainstream circles and mainstream education isn't inclusive, even though they say it is. Um, and, you know, in even like schools that have like offshoots, so, you know, the special needs centres and the, the huts and on the banded on the side of the school, it says it's inclusive, but it's not because they're all separate anyway. And then they don't get the opportunities that they could have had if they'd have been at a school that was totally geared up for that nature of impairment anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a bugbear of mine. Uh, well, <laughs> um, if you were if you were a child now, you so you're very academic. You you've got a degree in en aerospace, aerospace engineering, engineering yeah. which wow, just sounds confusing saying that. So yeah, I think you're right. You're more students who access the mainstream, which can be good and also can be bad. Um, and yeah, you're right. You yeah, get a lot yeah, more social inclusion. So main, mainstream schools do not provide social inclusion. No. Um, it is it, it is not. They provide education and education only. So students like me would be sat in a corner doing maths and everybody else is doing PE. Um, so I'd still have my engineering degree, but I wouldn't have social. Well, wouldn't have a social life with it. Yeah. Um, and then I'd be at university, I'd be faced with an engineering society where which doesn't necessarily accept people in wheelchairs to do engineering jobs because it's hard work for them and extra costs on the employer and all that stuff. So because um, when I was at uni, that was I had to face that. I was going on a work placement and I was only one or two students not to get a placement, even though I had average grades and I wasn't by any means the worst student in the in the year. Um, so Again, I can only put that down to the wheelchair. I, you know, I pretty much guarantee that it was because of that, and that no one decided to take me on. Um, so, again, you know, these people who've got potential to do things, they get the education and they can't do anything with it because society is not geared up to to accept them. Um, whereas with me, I just don't accept that. Um, Trelaw has taught me that I'm far more capable than anybody could possibly dream of. So, when the engineering world shut their door on me, I I didn't cry about it. I just focused on my botcher career and two fingers to them. Yeah. Um, but other people wouldn't have their social life to be able to, or their other skill sets to be able to fall back on because they've been pushed down the education route and they've got no quality of life. They've got, you know, they've only got one string to their bow. So when that string breaks, it's a useless instrument. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying, actually. That's, and Sorry, then <laughs> your achievements keep on going, I think. And in 2022, you received an OBE from from Prince Charles, now now King Charles. What was that like? And what are your memories of kind of getting you've got MBE and OBE, haven't you? What what yeah. are your memories of that and meeting royalty? Um, so that was more for the family, to be fair. That was kind of special. I was able to take my family, uh, obviously uh, took my mum and dad to Buckingham Palace to see uh prince william uh, give me my mbe uh, with sarah 
Um, so that was, you know, for a working class family who had, you know, let's be honest, they're never going to rub shoulders with royalty um, on any normal given day. Um, but, you know, in in this place, you know, which had like chandeliers the size of, you know, a table and you got like, you know, paintings with gold, um, gold frames and, you know, of kings from the past and queens and Queen Victoria and all, you know, they can walk down the massively plush carpets and uh, and walk, you know, the, the huge rooms and sort of see all that. Um, obviously, I've been in the Buckingham Palace a few times, but they, they never have. So for, to be able to give that to them, to see their son sort of on, pick up a medal, um, doesn't really matter what the medal was, but it's more for them to be able to see their son on in Buckingham Palace is pretty cool. Um, so that was special. And then obviously my sister was the only one that was sort of left out. So I was able to take her to Windsor Castle um, when I received my OBE. Um, so again, just be able to, when we were queuing up to receive my award, you know, looking at the different kings on the walls and the, the pictures and the, you know, talking to the, um, to the officers that were there um, about the history of it. And yeah, it's just, you know, it's the proudness of the country and the, you know, my sister is quite patriotic, so it's nice to be able to share that memory with her. Definitely. And, and after the Paris Games this year, maybe it could be Sir David Smith. Uh, well, it, it tends to go... So uh, So I've already plotted my route. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, so it's MBE, OBE, CBE, and then knighthood. Um, so the next logical step would be CBE, so commander. Um, so even if I win gold in uh, Paris, I'm very unlikely to get a sir just yet um because i am only a botch player um but uh we, we shall see um no that's, do you do you use your your ob to your advantage sometimes um when there's something i need doing and an email needs to be sent with a bit of force behind it i might <laughs> leave the obe and um yeah amazing and then looking ahead to to this year's yours years games probably a stupid question because i imagine the answer will be to win but what are your expectations um, yeah, so uh, yeah, this year again, it, I mean, obviously it's to try and win, but you never know. Um, but um, yeah, I, I'm in a good place. I'm in good form. So my aim, my rivals are always getting closer to me now. So it's not never a given, but um, just to play well. Um, and I know if I play my best, I, I'm going to be difficult to beat. So that sort of, that's the target, be difficult to beat until the final and then don't lose. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then yeah. Um, and then in the team, we got a good chance of a medal, I think. So that's the focus this year is to try and get the team over the line again. It's been a long time since London. So, um, who's, your, yeah. who's your closest competitors? Is it, you mentioned Portugal quite a few times. Is it Portugal? Uh, yeah, Portugal, Holland, Korea, Japan, China. <laughs> There's hundreds of them. Uh, yeah, they're all good. Um, in, a, in the team event, it's really competitive. It's very, very tight, very competitive. And all the teams are good. Brazil, I didn't mention. Um, so, yeah, um, it's difficult. Um, yeah, the team the team is the most wide open comp category, I think. Um, and, yeah, on any given day, anyone can win it. Um, Thailand, I didn't mention. Crazy. I should mention them. Um, so, yeah, it, it, there are some very, very good teams there. So, we, we, we nothing's a given in the team. But um, we've got a chance. So, if we will try and take it. Brilliant. And I'm looking forward to your career. Where do you see your career in the future? And kind of how long is a, is a botcher career? Or what's your plan after botcher, maybe? Yeah, so I don't really know. Um, so, I mean, you can play for botcher as long as you like. It's not necessarily so physically demanding that I have to stop when I hit 40 or whatever. Um, so um, it depends on life and how things go. Um, at the moment, I see myself playing for the next, certainly up into L.A., maybe to 32 which is melbourne um so you know uh, that'll be i'll be i'll be 43 at that point so yeah it, sh it should be fine it's for my body it's good for the body anyway i know the botch has helped my health and general physical condition so um it's something that i'll probably continue doing even if i don't do it um so i'm probably never going to stop really there's, there's um and more gold unless, medals on the way yeah potentially um and you know it's only when i stop being competitive as i might I might stop um, or I will stop enjoying it. But at the moment, it's all going well. So I, I don't see any reason to stop. Um, and and then sort of post-botcher, I mean, if there is a post-botcher, I might just keep playing it until I stop 
until I stop living. Um, but um, if, there, if there is a post-botcher, I'm sort of building a career as a nutrition coach, uh, working Herbalife Nutrition and working around sort of trying to build a sort of brand in my local community and a community hub and just helping people with their general health and well-being. Um, is that at Swansea University? Is that where you live, Swansea? Um, yeah, so I live in Swansea. I live in uh, Lamb Samlet now, um, but no, not at university. Um, uh, so I've given up education years ago. Um, <laughs> um, that was one thing I was happy to retire from. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I so I'm just working self-employed at the moment, and hopefully going to build a a strong business um, as well. Uh, you know, it's one thing that I'm finding quite difficult. So it's kind of given me the motivation to do it. I, I like things that aren't easy. Um, so. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm I'm excited about trying to prove to people that say I can't. You're not a you're not a Swansea City fan, are you? No, not really. Um, yeah. I I mean, my home team is Southampton, so yeah, they're doing alright at the moment. So I'll support them. Um, That's right then, because I'm originally from Cardiff. I'm a Cardiff fan. So if you were a Swansea fan, I would have had to cut the interview immediately. <laughs> well, I definitely don't support Cardiff. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I follow Swansea. Um, but I, you know, if it was. If someone said Swansea or Southampton, I would go with Southampton all the time. Brilliant. Um, okay, so we've got last question. So every week on our podcast, we like our guests to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question, but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. So okay. this week's question comes from our previous guest, who was Birmingham City footballer Paul Devlin. And he Ooh. asks, who is the worst dressed person you've ever had in your team? Some people would say me. Um <laughs> Yeah. Um, who was the worst dressed? Oh, um, we had a psychologist a little while ago called John Marchant, um, and his dress sense was a little bit weird. I think all psychologists have that weirdness about them, but he was definitely in the weird zone. Um, and yeah, his dress sense was, yeah, not great. And could you do the same for us, please? Could you think of a question for our next guest, but we're not going to tell you who the guest is? But the question can be anything you want. It doesn't have to be do a sport. It can be anything. Okay. Um, so, question. I think. So, in your like, in your team or uh, circle, um, who is the worst singer? <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, David. Um, I'd just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, please continue to leave reviews and, and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. David, thank you so much for giving up your time and speaking to us today on our podcast. We we really appreciate it. And it's amazing to hear your success story and, and how it's grown and grown and grown and hopefully will continue to grow. So yeah, thank you so much and, and best of luck for, for Paris and, and, and LA and everything I'm moving forward. So thank you. Cheers, Alan. Thank you. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast where autism and sports combine.